I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is sportscaster, writer, and podcaster, Paul Romanuk. Paul's career has spanned over 30 years in Canadian and European media markets as an on-air host, play-by-play announcer, and producer. He has covered some of Canada's biggest international hockey games, the Stanley Cup Finals, the World Series, Soccer's World Cup, six different Olympic games, as well as hundreds of NHL and NBA games. He has recently completed the second season of his own podcast, The Walrus Was Paul, in which he interviews Canadian musical guests about the Beatles catalog. And if that wasn't enough, Paul continues to write the successful Hockey Superstars Annual, which has been a Canadian scholastic book club tradition for the past 30 years. Welcome, Paul, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I am very well. Thank you very much. I am at uh, I am at the Walrus was Paul Global Headquarters, uh, also known as a small room in my basement. So, that, and what part of the town is that located? If uh, that is in uh, the beaches, uh, excellent in, in Toronto, where I've been uh, for most of my adult life, uh, save for the uh, the nine years that I lived overseas. So it, it's it's my home. Excellent, and not a better place to be. Whether it's winter or summer, is is stuff to do. And may I assume you're a guy who enjoys getting outside? Yeah, it's a fantastic area uh, for uh, for my wife and I. We, we've always had dogs, so lots of ravines to walk the dogs in. I'm a, an avid uh, runner, so there's the uh, Martin Goodman Trail down at the lake. So yeah, it's perfect. It's, it's a lovely little bit of Toronto. Fantastic. Well, with your permission, let's go all the way back and get the Paul Romanuk story. All you the way are- how far back? How far We're going all I, the way back, Paul. Did I have all hair? Did, will I have hair for this part of it? <laughs> well, if you, I don't have it either. So both of us had hair back at this time. But you are not a native Torontonian. Where were you born? And, and please describe your upbringing. I was born in Oshawa. Uh, and uh, back when I was born and raised in Oshawa, I lived there you know, all the way through my high school years until I left to come to Toronto to go to uh, Ryerson. Uh, polytechnic at the time. But to, to answer your question, uh, yeah, uh, born and raised in Oshawa. And when I grew up there, it was its own thing. And, you know, it wasn't a, a bedroom community of Toronto. I didn't know anybody whose parents went into Toronto to work. They all worked in Oshawa at General Motors or one of the many, many uh, manufacturing plants that fed, you know, the General Motors machines. So that was my upbringing in South Oshawa in particular. Yeah, let's get specific here. And during that time, you, I guess, played road hockey. And you have a problem very familiar to me. My wife, born and raised in Montreal. She's been in Toronto now much longer than she ever lived in Montreal. But she still cheers for the wrong team. You uh, somehow, <laughs> despite being in Oshawa, you somehow uh, got behind the uh, the Habs. Tell us about that. Well, like a lot of kids at that age, so the, the your golden age of sports, as somebody once said, uh, and I've repeated it, is whenever you were sort of that magic age, 12, 13, 14 years of age, right? Because you're, you're old enough that you can appreciate it and probably play it, but you're young enough that a lot of life's complications haven't, uh, haven't come to be yet. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's before girls. 
girls. Uh, if you're a guy, uh, it's before, uh, you know, school gets really heavy. It's before work. Uh, so it's, you know, it can be your life and hockey was watching the NHL. And the reason I became such a big Montreal Canadiens fan was like any kid of that age, uh, you like to cheer for the winners. And back in the seventies, the Montreal Canadiens were the greatest team in the NHL. You had Scotty Bowman as the coach. And of course the great Guy Lafleur, Jacques Lemaire, Steve Shutt, Doug Risebrow, Ken Dry could go, I could do the whole roster for you. And, and the thing that clinched it for me, Andrew was uh, back in those times, this was before the days of, of cable TV. So most people had an antenna and if you had a fancy antenna, it had a thing on it called a rotor, uh, which was a little motor on the bottom of the antenna. And you would have a control in your house and you would aim it to pick up certain stations. So if you aimed it towards Toronto, then you picked up the Toronto CBC affiliate and, and some other stations. If you aimed it across the lake, you got the American stations. And if you aimed it towards the east, you picked up Channel 12 in Peterborough, which was the CBC station. But on Saturday nights, Channel 12 showed the Montreal Canadiens games because they were the national feed. And I got to hear the great Danny Gallivan. And, you know, that would that sealed it for me. He was as much a part of the Montreal Canadiens to me as any of the players. Uh, and he was my play-by-play hero for sure. I, I think it was an interesting thing to grow up in Southern Ontario. Just as you know, you had access through the antenna to all these different feeds and all these different teams. And, and you make a great point. People like winners. So I can I now understand what's going on over there. In your career, Paul, did you subsequently have an opportunity to meet any of these Montreal Canadian heroes that you had grown up watching? I was very lucky. Yes, I met a number of them uh, on numerous occasions, including Danny Gallivan uh, on, on one occasion. And uh, they didn't disappoint at all. I, I met Ken Dryden when he was uh, the general manager, uh, president of the Toronto Maple Leafs. So I met him then. Uh, I, for various projects that I've worked on, I've had a chance to meet Steve Shutt and Guy Lafleur, the late Guy Lafleur, uh, Doug Risebrow, Bob Gainey, uh, Rick Chartraw. Uh, Brian Engblom, uh, Ryan Walter, many of those guys, uh, Doug Jarvis, and uh, yeah, none of them, none of them disappointed. Uh, it was it was great to meet them, and and the guy who especially didn't disappoint was Danny Gallivan, which I'm so wow. happy about. Yeah, well, I'm very pleased to hear that because I'm sure, as you've often heard, people often say, you know what, I kind of wish I hadn't met my hero because it wasn't they weren't the person I thought I was. You had this positive experience. I'll flip it the other way. Did anyone, Paul, really strike you as like even better than you thought they would be? Uh, that's that's a tough one. I'd probably have to uh, you know to mull that one over a little bit. Um, you know, I would I would certainly come back to to meeting Danny Gallivan, where uh, he was you know he was just so nice to a, a young broadcaster. I was at at TSN at the time, and he was retired. And I was in Montreal for the occasion of we were broadcasting uh, some kind of a CHL all-star game, I want to say, between OHL players and QMJHL players. And we'd gone to the morning skate at the Forum, and there was this place called the Texan, which was, uh, you know, it was 
a bar and grill, uh, old style. And a lot of reporters and people would go there because it was walking distance from the form. And so they would go there afterwards and grab some lunch. And that's exactly what we were doing. And I was at a table with some colleagues and I looked over and I saw Danny Gallivan sitting with some people and, you know, I couldn't help but stare at him and he couldn't help but notice that I was staring at him. And I, I went back with this push pull of, should I go over and introduce myself? Ah, that would seem unprofessional. He's over there with people. I don't want to be that guy. So, so bottom line is I didn't. Uh, and then when he was getting up to leave, he walked right by our table and he stopped and he turned and he said, he put out his hand and he said, Mr. Romanuk, big fan of your work. And he shook my hand and we talked for, you know, probably 90 seconds or 60 seconds. I don't even remember what we talked about. Uh, and after you got off, off the floor, back on your chair. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, and who knows what happened? I suspect he was with, uh, he was with some, you know, some former colleagues and in town and, and, you know, just maybe out having some breakfast. Uh, and, uh, you know, who's that guy over there staring at me and somebody <laughs> might've looked and said, Oh, he's a kid from TSN. He's a you know young play by play guy. Oh, okay. Oh, what's his name? It was probably, I'm sure it was that kind of thing. I can't yeah. imagine that he would have known me. Um, but he was, you know, such a nice, there you go. Right. I'm telling this story 40 years later or whatever it is. And yeah. uh, that's the impression it made on me. And that that's, that's, you know, something I'll carry with me always. It was fantastic to have met my, my broadcasting hero. Oh, that is fabulous. That is fabulous. Now, Paul, in 1981, you moved to Toronto to attend Ryerson Polytechnical Institute, recently renamed to Toronto Metropolitan University. What brought you over to Toronto? Like, did you really have your eye on Ryerson or what, what prompted you to come over here? I did. Uh, I wanted to get into broadcasting, uh, you know, very, you know, large strokes. I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I had a couple of things. I'm a big music guy as well. And there was a stage where I wanted to be a DJ. Uh, you know, I wanted to be on the radio talking about music and, um, you know, thank God I didn't do that because there's, there's no jobs left. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I digress. Um, so the reason I went to Ryerson is I, I'm sure I read somewhere. I, I seem to recall, uh, Ted Darling. I know the former Buffalo Sabres play-by-play announcer went to Ryerson. And I think he mentioned it in an interview. He must've that I, that I read somewhere or heard as well as a couple of other prominent sort of broadcasters. And it just thought, well, you know, then that's where I want to go. And I yeah. applied to Ryerson and Humber and a couple of other places. And I, uh, I got into Ryerson and it was such a thrill. I still remember the, the, the package dropping through the door. You found out via the mail and, uh, and it was just, Oh my God, I got in and it was, you know, the start of a great adventure. It was uh, such a thrill. Now, when you were at Ryerson, Paul, would you have been commuting back and forth to Oshawa or you lived in Toronto? No, I wanted to get the, uh, I wanted to get the, you know, I wanted to take the next step as an adult. I didn't want to live at home with mom and dad. Yeah. Uh, there were people who did the commute, but no, I, I moved in, uh, lived with a couple of uh, school friends at a place uh, down uh, Symington Avenue and Bloor, I want to say. Okay. Uh, in Toronto's West End and, uh, you know, then moved uh, the second year with this, a couple of buddies who I met at Ryerson. We lived at a, a house in Cabbage Town that we rented, a floor of a house. And then in my last year, I went back to the West End, lived at a place with some friends at Christie Pitts. 
Uh, and, uh, then, yeah, I never, never went, I went back to Oshawa for a little while after I graduated for maybe less than a year. Then I moved back and I lived, uh, at Young and Girard right across the road from Ryerson. Yeah. And lived in an apartment there for many years. And then eventually when, uh, we bought our first place, we, uh, we ended up uh, gravitating towards the beaches and, uh, that's where we are now. And Paul, during your college era, uh, what were the significant hangouts and eateries that you remember spending your time at? Well, cool places. Uh, there was a place called Nuts and Bolts, which I remember uh, on, I want to say it was on Gould Street, uh, maybe Gould and Dundas. Um, and it was like a, you know, it was a, it was a cool club that university students went to. Yeah. Uh, and that was the era of, you know, we're getting into, uh, it's, it's post disco. We're getting into new wave. Uh, so, uh, you know, ultra box and bands like that, that you were into. Uh, so yeah, it was really cool place. Uh, and there was a, place that's uh, long gone now, I think, but it was a staple for any Ryerson kid of the era, a place called the Big Slice. Okay. It was a pizza place uh, on Young, uh, Young and Gerard, I want to say, right near there. And you'd go in and you'd get like a big, massive, you know, <laughs> salad bowl size slice of pizza uh, for, I want to say it was a buck back then, you know, a long time ago. So I remember those places and, uh, and then, you know, the, uh, the Imperial pub or you know, the public library, which is right around the corner, uh, sank many a, a pint there. Uh, the Ryerson pub, which was the Rams corral and uh, probably spent uh, the odd spare down at uh, Fillmore's, which was just a short walk from, yeah. uh, which, you know, a young teenage or young, young, 20 uh, something year old boy who wouldn't, right? Great food. You can't get better lunch there, right? There was no better lunch buffet. There was, a, remember, I, I won't, I won't, I won't get you to, to, to out yourself, but I remember there was a guy who walked around carrying a tray of shish kebabs and he had like a pair of clamps or, or, you know, uh, uh, and he'd be snapping them like click, click, click. So if you wanted to buy a shish kebab and, it, and I, I never did, I can't imagine there would have been anything more revolting than a meat shish kebab at Fillmore's. <laughs> I think that's going to be the, the lead quote of this episode of, of Toronto <laughs> Legends. Now, Paul, you weren't kidding. You had your eye on broadcasting. You had not even finished school from 81 to 84 in parallel with attending your classes at Ryerson. You did unpaid work on the Toronto Marlboro's Sunday broadcast on the Ryerson campus radio station. You were the stats and technical equipment associate for a play-by-play -play announcer by the name of Michael Landsberg before you took over play-by-play -play duties. What do you remember about that first gig, let's call it? Well, I, I'd gone right away to the campus radio station, <clears throat> uh, like immediately, I think first couple of days there, may, it might have even been the first day and said, you know, I want to do a show. And uh, I got a show uh, you know, when nobody else would want one. Uh, you know, where do you not want to be on a when you're a university student working on a Friday night? So I got Friday Paul's Friday night party from nine until midnight on CKLN. So I was there doing that, doing the music thing, really enjoyed it. And then uh, I remember there was a, a they needed, I ran into Michael Landsberg, who was a third year student, I want to say when I was first, terrific, terrific guy, was a bit of a mentor to me at that time. And um, Michael said, well, you know, we need a guy to operate for the, the Marley games. 
I said, yeah, okay, cool. You know, you know, whatever. I was keen. And uh, I remember going with Michael to CKLN on a Sunday and, you know, picking up this big mixing board and then lugging it up the stairs to the broadcast booth at the old Maple Leaf Gardens. And Michael uh, called the play-by-play and his color guy was a, a guy named Dave Watkins. So they were doing the games and I was just sort of helping out. And then after a few weeks, maybe a month, Michael, for whatever reason, I've never talked to him about it actually, didn't want to do it anymore. He had other things going on or he didn't want to blow off his Sundays. So all of a sudden they needed a play-by-play guy. And I said, well, said, yeah, I can do that because I had done that in my mind and playing road hockey and, and like turning down the sound and the TV and I got the gig. And so, yeah, I started calling Toronto Marley's games in the 81, 82 season. And then the following year, the package got bigger and we started doing the odd road game. Uh, and then by my last year of Ryerson, which was 83, 84, we were doing like a full complement of games on CKLN. And it was, uh, yeah, that was my first real big play-by-play break. Thanks to Michael Landsberg not wanting to do it. And your Sunday, you're spending your afternoon at Maple Leaf Gardens in the broadcast area. Sundays and uh, and sometimes Saturdays, yeah. And, it, you know, these were Toronto Marley games when the Marleys uh, weren't that sexy, right? <laughs> there mm-hmm. was, you could hear the dust settling in the graves uh, as we sat way up there and called the games. But, man, I was calling play-by-play, and it was on the radio, and, and somebody heard it, and I ended up getting a spinoff gig on what was then CKAR, CCAR in Oshawa, working on the Oshawa Generals games and then uh, transitioned into that after I graduated. So yeah, that opened a big door. So that was your first paid job when you did the Oshawa Generals games on CKAR. And subsequently you moved on, or maybe even at the time you were doing some freelance, you were uh, helping out at Hockey Night in Canada with their personnel, Bob Cole, Harry Neal, and Dave Hodge. And you were kind of a stats assistant and runner. Was that during this period as well? No, that I started doing that when I graduated. Uh, a guy named Doug Beforth, a very uh, well-known producer at the time and the, the Canadian uh, sportscasting scene. Uh, he was Hockey Night Canada producer. And he hired me to be a runner, in, and it would have been for the 84-85 season. And I did that as a freelancer until... I want to say 1987, something like that. And uh, yeah, it was just tremendous. I mean, I was, uh, I, I met another one of my broadcasting heroes, Dave Hodge, and got to work alongside him uh, and uh, sat up in the booth and did stats for the great Bob Cole uh, and Harry Neal and Mickey Redman was a color guy at the time. Yeah, it was, you know, great job. And that, that came, you know, when I, when I finished school, I didn't really have, I had a bunch of jobs. I was a newsreader at CCAR. I did Oshawa Generals games in CCAR. Still did the odd Marley's game. I was a runner for Hockey Night in Canada uh, and probably half a dozen other things. It was uh, it was pretty wild when I uh, think back to that. To then. I, I worked a lot. <laughs> well, that's the way to start. And, and you, you obviously were also in some special places at special times. Our generation still can't stop talking about it. I have to ask you about Pengate in 1987, March 14th. While you were working behind the scenes at Hockey Night in Canada, you were a first-hand witness to Dave Hodge's infamous pen flip, in which he criticized the CBC, his employer, live on air while signing off in his handoff to the local news. Dave Hodge was irritated that the 
network had insisted on cutting to the local news at 11 p.m. rather than sticking with coverage of an exciting end of a Canadian Flyers hockey game that had been heading into overtime. Why are we still talking about this? And and what were your impressions at the time? And what do you remember of it? Well, it, it, first of all, just to, as a side note, I heard um, uh, Toronto Mike, uh, a colleague of yours, uh, did a, a podcast on this where he took little bits of uh, interviews that he'd done with various people and, and did a compilation. And it was a fascinating thing to listen to uh, because, of course, you know, one of the most unreliable things, as many, many studies have shown, is uh, is memory. And the people who had different takes and different memories of it and people who I, I have no recollection of being anywhere near the place. Uh, like, it, you know, they're not part of my memory of the incident. So that was fascinating to listen to. Uh, and if you're really interested in it, that's a good place to start. Why do I think it was a, a big deal? Uh, you know, it was like any of those things. You had a guy taking a stand on behalf of everyone, I think, really, for uh, something that was a, a really s- stupid policy that the CBC had. Um, and finally, this guy, again, to use a, a more modern term, it was the perfect storm of it had happened again that day earlier. I know that was the the match that started the fire was earlier in the day, Bob Cole and Dave Hodge were sitting in what was known as the client room as a green room. And they were sitting there watching uh, the briar watching curling and CBC dumped out of the briar extra ends. I want to say might've been, but they dumped out of it to go to local news because that was the policy. Local news was sacrosanct because it generated revenue for the local stations. So you did not go over into the news and they were both just absolutely you know, flummoxed by this. So later on that day, that night when a similar but different, but a similar type thing happened, right? We, uh, the Toronto game had ended Right. So that game was over. The normal policy was you filled until the top of the clock and you went to news. You went to the national, the the, the national newscast, which came right after Hockey Night in Canada. That was the policy. But because the game ended early, there was quite a bit of time to fill. I want to say, you know, 15 minutes, which is a long time in television. Uh, you know, a long time for Dave to pontificate. You know, that's that's it's too long. So so what they did was we're going to go and show you bonus coverage of the Montreal game. And, uh, and you know, damned if the game didn't get tied up near the end, exactly what you didn't want to happen, and they were going to have to go to overtime. Now, everybody knew this was nothing new that was dropped on Dave at the last second. Hey, you know, unlike previous times, we're not going to go. Everybody knew. Uh, and uh, Doug Sellers was the producer in the truck. And I was doing stats for Dave and I had on a headset. So of course I could hear Dave who was there in the same room with me. uh, And I could hear Doug in the truck, in the production truck. And they had a sort of a back and forth. And at the end of the day, Doug did all he could do. Doug is the producer of the show. And he said, Dave, like, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not responsible for network policy. And what you're going to do is you're going to, you're going to come on, you're going to do the scoreboards, you're going to wrap, you're going to apologize. We can't show the rest of the game and you're going to say goodnight. Mm-hmm. And Dave was, I still remember his words. He was, don't 
put me on camera and make me for the second time today have to tell people that we're not going to show them the end of the game. Don't put me on camera. And Doug, as a good producer should, said, well, Dave, you know, (laughs) you're the talent. I'm the producer. And at at the end of the day, that's your job. You're going to come on camera and close the show. Mm -hmm. And those, so you had a couple of guys butting heads and we all know what happened. Dave did the, you know, are we going to go to the game? You know, he, he knew full well, they weren't going to the game. Mm -hmm. That was just theatrics. And, uh, and then, you know, the pen got flipped and, and bravo to him because he, uh, he took a stand and he did the right thing. And to answer your question of what did I think at the time, at the time, uh, because we're on a podcast, I, was, I, I thought, holy shit, I can't believe what I just saw. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was, it was unprecedented. Um, and he got up. I remember him. He, he got up and he walked over and he took his coat off the hanger, which was over by the client room and by the door. And he walked out, he left. Wow. Later. And that was it. And well, thank you for that. That was a firsthand account. And for you, Paul, you're just, you're, I don't even know if you, I guess you were done school at that point. You're, I was, just, yeah. You're just starting your career and seeing this. You must have said like, this is going to be uh, exciting times ahead. If this is the way it's always going to be. It was, it was something. I mean, you know, Dave is a, Dave is a great, great broadcaster and I enjoyed working uh, around and later with him. And I, you know, I, I learned a lot from him. And, uh, you know, I, when I look back on it now as a 60 year old adult, I go, you know, good on him, uh, good on him because it was a, and it's, it's not the policy anymore, right? Now the policy is you stay with the event until it's over and then you leave, which is what it should have been from the start. And, uh, you know, and it, it, uh, I won't say it cost him his career because he went on to do some other interesting things, but he certainly could have sat in that chair, you know, the biggest host chair in Canadian television, easily could have sat there another 10 or 15 years, I'm sure. Yeah. And I'm still talking about it today. So it's exactly still, still yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. Paul, as a, as a fresh graduate, you also freelanced at the, the, the time for something brand new as an all sports cable channel called TSN. And when you uh, got over there, you did a bunch of different things and eventually you were doing the occasional update on the uh, sports desk. Talk about that experience of being with this new TSN. Well, people uh, of my cohort at Ryerson and other places were very, very lucky. And I I do some teaching now of uh, young broadcast students. And I always say like, we were really lucky because we graduated in 1984 and uh, any, uh, anyone with some knowledge of Canadian broadcasting history knows that that was the year where they first launched uh, pay channels in Canada. It was in the, it was in the fall of 1984 and they launched much music uh, TSN. I want to say there was one called the C channel. There was another one called, I think it was just called the movie network. Uh, there was super channel. So there were a bunch discovery network came a little bit later. So they launched all of these channels. And of course, TSN was, was one of them. Uh, so many jobs, production jobs and on air jobs created as well. And because these were all new launches, they did the tried and true and they hired, uh, you know, enthusiastic and cheap. And I mean, there's a magic combo. Yeah. You know, it's the McDonald's model, right? You hire young people, you don't pay them as much as you have to pay older people. They're willing to work harder and, you know, tis ever been thus. And, you know, I was lucky enough as were a bunch of my cohorts, cohorts, Michael Landsberg being one of them, uh, to get jobs at TSN 
in the very early days. Michael was a day oneer. He started in September of 84. Uh, I started freelancing for them in February of 85 and then eventually was full-time with them by, uh, I want to say, October, August, September of 87 and around there. But to answer your question, it, yeah, it was really exciting. And I'm so lucky that I had a chance to be a part of that because I, I don't think it'll ever be repeated. It, it was a it was a small place uh, up on 1155 Leslie Street in Don Mills. And there was a real all for one, one for all uh, family atmosphere to it, you know, long before it got swallowed up by, uh, you know, Bell Media, which like it, it doesn't even remotely resemble the place that I started work at and, and was at for, I want to say 15 years. Uh, but it, yeah, it was, timing was everything. And I had all these great opportunities at TSN and it was a great place to work with some fantastic people who I'm still friends with uh, many of them. Well, because Paul of, of your on camera exposure and everything you had done there, this led to a station CFAC in Calgary, offering you the very princely sum of $50,000 for a full-time job to report and anchor their news first news show. You were 25 years old. You must've thought you hit the jackpot. You said, I'm going to go to Calgary and give this a try. Oh yeah. No, that, that was big money in, in 1987. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'd been freelancing, probably making a little bit less than that, working at a whole bunch of jobs. And then uh, yeah, I had this opportunity to go out and, and be a local sportscaster uh, for, you know, I, I still remember calling my dad uh, who's gone now, but I remember calling my dad and telling him, you know, how much they were going to pay me. And he was, you know, just couldn't believe it. what I, I can't believe I had to work my whole career to get my dad was a secure was a security guard at General Motors yeah uh so you know in a in a good year with overtime he he might have uh, he might have hit that near the end of his career um so yeah that was great and uh, yeah unfortunately just as timing worked out moved out to Calgary got settled I loved the place actually thought you know, you know this wouldn't not a bad place to have a career uh, and uh, they had an NHL team, they had a CFL team, uh, nice lifestyle, you know, great city, nice people. And uh, then, you know, TSN came calling. Um, and of course, in hindsight, I'm, you know, why the hell couldn't they have made that decision before I, I moved all the way out here? Uh, yeah. But the, the, a guy named uh, Jim Thompson, who's, uh, who's gone now, but Jim Thompson said, hey, look, we'd like you to come back. There's an opening on the desk to be an anchor, and we think you'd be perfect for it. What do you think? And we went back and forth, and TSN paid me $55,000. <laughs> they knew how to negotiate. They had top negotiators there. They did. Uh, so it was back to TSN, and, uh, and that was that. And TSN, Paul, is where I think you're most uh, famously known from 89 to 2001. You were the lead NHL play-by-play announcer. And I might add that even when that network lost the national NHL rights, uh, you were the English language television voice of the Montreal Canadiens regional broadcast. So may I suggest your, your dreams have come true at this point. Well, that was pretty fantastic. It was, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I stopped being, a, you know, a Montreal Canadiens fan a long, long time ago. Uh, really, when you're doing, when you're calling games in the league, um, you know, to, not to get off on another topic, but I'm always amused by people on uh, on social media who will, oh, this guy hates this guy and he hates our team and he's, he's a homer and he's not a homer. And it's, I, I can tell you folks, 
little inside secret here. There is not one network level play-by-play announcer anywhere who could care less who wins the game. I couldn't have cared less, you know, when I was all, you're all about the show. Mm-hmm. You, you want uh, the perfect show hockey show. In my, in my opinion is home team falls behind early. Okay. Uh, they're trailing late in the second period. They battle back early in the third, tie it up. They score a late goal and win. You know, crowds engaged, crowd goes crazy. It's an exciting broadcast. That That's what you want. That, yeah. that's, that is what you want. Uh, I really, when I was doing Leafs games or when I was doing the Habs games for, for TSN, uh, English language voice, I honestly, hand on heart, I couldn't have cared less who won or lost. It was all about you wanted to have a good show. So, uh, yeah, it was a dream come true in that I was calling NHL play-by-play and the Bell Center, and before that, the Forum, by far my favorite place to call a game. Um, the atmosphere and the facilities and the setup, but from the standpoint of, you know, doing Montreal Canadiens games, it it wasn't, you know, I I wasn't at that point, a rabid Montreal Canadiens fan anymore. It's all about the product. It is. It it, it really is. And, and, and I get it. If you're, you know, if you're Joe sports fan, um, who's and emotionally invested in, in, you know, the Leafs, the Raptors, the Canadians, whatever your team is, the Blue Jays, uh, I don't understand it. Uh, you know, I don't understand how a, you know, a 50 year old adult could be in tears after their team loses a playoff game. I don't understand it. I'm grateful that there are people like that because I made a very good living as a broadcaster because people like that follow sports rapidly, but you know, it's, it really is. It's, it's all about the show when you're a broadcaster. I can speak for Gord Miller, Jim Hewson, Bob Cole, any of them. I, I guarantee Dave Randorf, uh, none of them could care less who wins and who loses at this stage. It's, it's a job. It's a profession, right? Now, Paul, you've, you've covered so many things. We could talk to you about the World Juniors, the Olympic Championships, seeing Canada win gold obviously would be right up there. But I want to ask you about you report on Wayne Gretzky's final games and his retirement announcement in 99. What do you remember about that? It was fantastic. It was, uh, you know, I mean, talk about having a, a, uh, a front row seat uh, for an historic occasion. And I, I remember, I want to say it was Ottawa was his last game in Canada. And I remember going up there as a reporter and he uh, came out for a curtain call and a you know, thunderous ovation and everything. And then they were going down to play in New York. And it was, I think it was a, it was a Saturday or a Sunday. I can't remember which. And that was going to be his final game. And, and I was sent down for TSN. And I, so I was at Madison Square Garden to see it in, with my own eyes, you know, standing. I think it was in the Zamboni uh, watching the ice, watching it. And then the the other thing that I really remember was the day between games, he had his press conference at, it was at the Felt Forum, I want to say, at Madison Square Garden. And I was there with my colleague, Bob McKenzie. Uh, we were sort of following this farewell tour of a couple of games. And we were on the air and talking and 
the press conference was over. So he'd been up and made his announcement and it was over. And Mackenzie and I were standing there and I was talking to Bob and all of a sudden I felt this tap on my back hand on my shoulder. And I looked over my left shoulder and it was Wayne Gretzky. And he had seen Bob and I standing there and I guess he knew us and he came walking over and yeah, I, so yes, I, I think I said, whatever you, what you'd say that I said, like I said, Oh, I said, Wayne, what do you, what do you want? <laughs> and uh, and uh, we're on the air. And he says, uh, I, 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 I remember saying we're on the air. And, and he says, well, I just wanted to come over and talk to Canada. And, uh, you know, good on him because he would have looked. Uh, I mean, Sportsnet was there, but Sportsnet was like insignificant uh, at the time. Um, and TSN would have been the, wow, you know, there's TSN. So I can get on and talk to Canada, like where this is being broadcast. And Bob and I interviewed him and he was uh, his usual cordial self. And, uh, and then he, you know, he left and that was it. And, and uh, yeah, it was, it was quite a moment. And I would love actually uh, to, uh, I had a recording of it on VHS that's gone long missing and I would love to see it again because it's, I mean, it's been a long time. And so in the fog of memory, I might be misremembering something. So big, big request out there, Andrew, to your listeners. If yes. somebody, somebody has a, a recording of that, I would, I would love it uh, just to refresh my memory. Well, bad news for you, Paul. It's only my mother and my uh, brother and sister that are listening to this, but we're going to get the word out <laughs> further and try and get this to you. You know, it's interesting what you say, Paul. Wayne Gretzky, this is a guy, very uniquely, he cannot leave his house without someone wanting to talk to him and engage with him and to think of the life he's had. But from everything that you hear about him, he's a fantastic guy. You've had some dealings with him. Is is he an example of someone who lives up to the building as a, as a good person? Um, yes. I mean, I've, yeah, I would never, uh, I would never purport to know Wayne Gretzky. Like we're not personal friends, right? Like I would, you know, I'm not one of those guys. Oh yeah, I know Gretz. You know, that's because, I, because I, no, I've interviewed him many times and I've talked to him, you know, off, off air, you know, hanging out in an airport or a practice rink or whatever, talk to him. So, you know, I think I'm confident enough to say if, if he walked into a room and I said, Hey Wayne, how you doing? He'd say, Hey Romy, how are you? So he would, I know him on that level. Mm-hmm. Um, and to answer your question, he's, yeah, he's always been, he's kind of a hockey version of Paul McCartney. Mm. Uh, he's, he's always on and aware of the fact that there are people around and who he is and the gravitas that goes with that. And, uh, he, you know, there's not a question he hasn't been asked in an interview. So you never get the feeling that you're, you know, you're, you're turning over new ground, breaking news here. Um, so, you know, interviewing him can sometimes be a little, again, like interviewing Paul McCartney. There's, there's nothing you're going to ask him that he hasn't been asked and that he hasn't answered. So there's all of that. But to answer your question, to me, he's always been, yes, he's been, he's been a, very nice guy, uh, very accommodating, very friendly, very knowledgeable. And the, the persona that he projects to the public, which is the one we all see, is exactly what he's like when you meet him. You know, that's what he's like. Um, he's, you know, been a, a, a true pro. Another guy uh, who I can say is, is that way is Sidney Crosby. Mm-hmm. You know, he is, he is, he is what you see. He's, he is a, he's, you know, very, he's again, very aware of who he is and that he's always on, you know, whenever he's 
out in public or interacting with the media, he realizes that and he conducts himself accordingly, which is with class and, and dignity. I think it is important. And my sense of it is these guys at this very upper echelon, these are the ones who are aware of that old kind of maxim that assume this is the first and only time someone's going to see you in action. So you always have to be at your best. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, 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 you nailed it. That's what the, the really, the big guys are, uh, and certainly in hockey has been my experience. You know, that's what they're like. That's, that's what they're like. I want to talk about your experience traveling the globe for hockey, Paul. I have a very good friend of mine and a very noted European hockey journalist, Risto Pakarainen. He's Finnish, currently based out of Sweden. He knew you were coming on and asked me to ask you, Paul, what's your favorite European city to visit and to watch hockey? Well, to watch hockey, that that is an interesting twist. Um, is, I mean, city to visit. Uh, there are many, uh, you know, we were very lucky when we lived in London for nine years, uh, you can pop over to, to Europe a lot. So I mean, love going to Paris, uh, fantastic, most beautiful city in the world that I've been to. Um, you know, it's, it's just, especially central Paris. It's just gorgeous. Um, Milan is another city that I really like in, in Rome for its culture. Uh, the, uh, the cathedral there is one of the most beautiful in the world that I've seen, uh, really enjoyed going to, uh, Amsterdam, you know, they, I mean, aside from the pot bars, the, uh, the art is just absolutely off the charts. Um, so those, those will be a few now to watch hockey. I think probably two of my favorite cities would be, uh, Helsinki. Risto's going to like that. Yes. Well, the, the, the Finns are the, and I've said this to people before that the Finn, the, the, there are two nations in the world in my mind, and I've traveled a lot. I've traveled around the world for, for international hockey. And there are two nations that love hockey beyond everything else. You know, it's the most reported on, it's the most watched, it's the most talked about. It is, without question, the number one sport, not even close. One of those countries is the one that we're both sitting in right now, and the other one is Finland. Uh, after that, hockey becomes, you know, it'll be big, and it's big in Russia, but it's not as big as football. Uh, it's big in Sweden, it's not as big as football. Uh, it's big in Switzerland, it's big in Germany, but it's not as big as other sports. Uh, now that can vary in regions, you know, it, it becomes a regional thing, mm -hmm. but the only two places where the entire country, like every city you would go to, it would be the number one sport and it's Canada and Finland. So when you go and watch hockey in Finland, uh, it's much like watching it in Canada. You know, you have a, a, a really knowledgeable audience who are passionate about the sport and, uh, and it's fun. Another great place though, uh, is, uh, Switzerland, uh, Bern where the, uh, the bears play and, uh, as, and, and, they the last couple of years they lead all of the european leagues in attendance so you know mm -hmm. hockey is a hockey might be the number one thing in bern switzerland just to, to use my earlier example right uh it, you know really really big there so that's another fun place to go watch it and if i'm not mistaken I, maybe it was gilmore who went there maybe during a strike year and then of course austin matthews played in the swiss league if i, I believe yeah, Austin played in Zurich, which is another good hockey city. Uh, the Zurich Lions, uh, you know, very, uh, very 
proud tradition and a good hockey fans, um, you know, good city there. And of course, Davos. I mean, maybe Davos would have to be uh, home of the Spengler Cup. I mean, there's there is no rink in the world that I've been in anywhere that can approach Davos for atmosphere and passion. Uh, like it's just it has it all. It's, it's an absolutely gorgeous rink, you know, with the great big cathedral ceiling and uh, glass at both ends and a tremendous atmosphere. And it's nestled in this beautiful village that's uh, in the mountains. There's a mountain range on either side. Uh, and it's, it's just it's like being on a postcard. Well, you've had a great opportunity to travel to all these places. And in, in 2005, you took the opportunity to move with your wife to London, England, and you were there for uh, almost 10 years. Um, I certainly don't want to gloss over this, but I got you've been very generous with your time and I got so much more I want to talk to you. But I did want to have you comment on one quote from you. In terms of work going to England, I naively thought, well, you know, 20, 15 to 20 years of credibility in the Canadian broadcast industry will be worth something in England. Actually, it's worth nothing. What was your experience when you got over there and, and how did you feel in terms of being able to continue your career or feeling like maybe you had to do something else? Well, it was, I never, I never thought about leaving the broadcast industry, um, broadcast writing and so on. But yeah, I did a lot of other things. Uh, and uh, that quote, I remember uh, it, it, you know, it sums it up pretty well is uh, you naively think that, well, been on a network here for 15, 20 years, <clears throat> you know, that, that should give me a certain degree of credibility. But uh, as they say in the quote, like it, it doesn't, it's, it's not worth uh, anything. And I've had young broadcasters say, Hey, well, I'd like to go work in, you know, work in the UK because it's English speaking, obviously. <clears throat> and there are jobs there. And I always say, well, I said, you know, you're in for, I'm not saying you can't, but it's an uphill battle. Uh, you have the wrong accent. Uh, you, if I had a BBC radio producer out and out, tell me, say, well, uh, I don't think I could put you on the air with that accent, uh, which is different right over here. It's a, Oh, wow. The guy's got a British accent. You know, let's get Piers Morgan over here. He's yeah. great. Let's get, uh, you know, let's get, uh, you know, the, it, it, it's worth something here. Right. Um, but over there, uh, you, you sound, uh, to use their words, uh, you sound too American. Hmm. Uh, now that there are exceptions, John McEnroe has for a long time been a, a commentator on BBC's Wimbledon coverage, but he's John McEnroe. <laughs> so, <laughs> Fair but, you know, for me to just go over and get a job as a you know, reading the sports, uh, you know, it's, it's, oh yes, yes. You worked in Canada. Oh, that's very nice. Oh, isn't that nice? You know, oh, lovely. Um, and that's just the way it is. Uh, you know, I, I don't hold any any grudges about it. And I, I, you know, there was a guy named Simon Reed who was very good to me at uh, Eurosport. Uh, and I got to do some play-by-play there, but again, it was, I did the play-by-play of the sort of, you know, I'm using air quotes, American sports. Yes. So I would do the ice hockey. I would do some basketball. I would do lacrosse. Uh, I remember an opportunity opened up to do downhill skiing. And, uh, again, it just came up, well, you know, you got your accent and I just don't know about that. And they, and that, that was more in, that was a more high profile sport. Um, you know, you Alpine sports are you know much more popular on television than they are here. And so that would have been a real bump up and it was just, uh, nah, 
Yeah, that accent doesn't work. Uh, so yeah, I, I ran into that, but I managed to find other work, um, and uh, everything worked out fine. It's all part of the whole experience. It is. It is absolutely. It is. Paul, you're also a writer. Your your big break into writing came from former Scholastic author Brian McFarlane. In the late '80s, you were helping Brian research one of his many hockey books. When he was approached to do a hockey superstars, he was too busy. Suggested you could do it. Here you are. You're still at it. The 30th anniversary of the annual, and uh, as you noted, it's a had a young player on the cover, Wayne Gretzky, the first time, and now we got Connor McDavid, I believe, on the most recent one. How do you enjoy doing that? And and uh, is it something you you enjoy to continue to do? Yeah, I don't know. I'm doing. I'm actually just working on next year's, uh, so that's enjoyable. Uh, it's it, the most. You don't get rich doing it, uh, and that's not why I did it. I, I do it because I enjoy writing. And then as the years go by, what you enjoy about it the most, I mean, back in, you know, in the day, uh, I would get uh, mails from, you know, like an old style kid would write a letter, put it in an envelope, address it to me and, and uh, send it to the publisher and they would forward them all on. And, and it was just so heartwarming, you know, a typical letter would be, Dear Mr. Romanuk, my name is Kirk. I love hockey. I love your hockey book. My favorite player is Wayne Gretzky. Uh, please write another book and send me a letter back. Your friend Kirk. And you get all these like little kids because it's for young readers, right? That's, How great is that? Oh, it's so nice. Uh, it really is. And and then as the years have gone by, uh, I now have you know, because I've been doing it for so long, I'll have people saying, well, I used to get that book as a kid and I now buy it for my kid. Uh, and that's, you know, that's really touching when, when somebody says that, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, that's, that's why I, I still do it. Is for that's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, there's another, there's a little boy who lives a few, um, a few doors down from me and, uh, any little kids in the neighborhood, I'll usually go and, you know, slip one through the door for him when I get my author's copies. And he sent me back this great, uh, this great big sign that he'd made saying, I love the book and I love hockey. And he'd drawn some pictures of, you know, hockey that, that a, a five-year-old boy, six-year-old boy would draw for hockey players and uh, stuff like that is really fun. That is fabulous. Now, Paul, one of your big loves is music. You are a podcaster. You've just completed your second season of The Walrus is Paul. What is The Walrus is Paul? It is a very simple concept. Uh, it was one <clears throat> that I first heard. Uh, it was a British podcast, and uh, it was called I Am the Egg Pod, hosted by a great guy named Chris Shaw. And he had a podcast where he would have on people and they would talk about their favorite Beatles album. Uh, and they go through it track by track. And I thought, hmm, you know what? I'll bet I could do one and uh, I'll put a bit of a different slant on it. And the slant I put on it was that I would only have musicians on uh, because he would have authors and playwrights and, and some musicians. So I would do only musicians and they would be Canadian musicians. And so that was the little niche I found. And 
So it's, it's just that I have on a Canadian musician or music person and we talk about their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album and we go through it track by track. And it's a, it's a lot of fun to do. Uh, I love the Beatles. I love music. And after interviewing hundreds of athletes over the years, it's really refreshing, uh, refreshingly different to interview music people uh, because it's different. And I've really had a good time. I've got 40 episodes done. So two series and uh, you know, might do a third series. I'm not sure yet. It's a lot of work, um, but it's a hobby. It's a labor of love. And how did you get into this in the sense of my understanding is you didn't just go to a podcast place and start you literally from scratch built up this whole uh, platform and, and concept. You want to talk about that process? Well, I, I mean, I had, you know, an experienced broadcaster and producer, so it wasn't that onerous. It was, uh, I had to find out a lot of, you know, how do I go about doing this? So how do I find a podcast host and what's a, what's a good podcast host to be with? And, you know, how does it get distributed and all of these things that I didn't understand. Uh, so, I mean, there was that aspect of it, kind of the, the mechanical things, but in terms of actually doing it, I was very comfortable. Uh, any interview as you've done, you do your research you have a conversation, uh, you edit it, and voila, there you go. Uh, so that part was very comfortable, and it's something I really enjoy. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to keep my chops in broadcasting uh, now that I, I wasn't working full-time anymore, and I, I did not want to do a sports podcast. I just, I was sportsed out, wanted to take a break, not saying that I won't do something sports-related at some point, but just at the time when I started The Walrus, I did did not want to do go on and talk about sports. So. And how's the uh, listener feedback loop been? And I assume it's very different from your time as a broadcaster. How are you enjoying the listener feedback, and how do you primarily get that feedback? It's been good. Uh, I mean, I don't get a lot of feedback. As certainly people interact on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, a little bit on Instagram, and I do get some emails. You know, you can go to the podcast website, Romycast. Uh, R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T dot com. And you can, uh, every episode page has a, you know, a, a comments box. There's also an email. So you can send me an email through the website if you want. So th- that kind of interaction has been good, but the most enjoyable interaction is being with the musicians. I've gotten to know, uh, you know, this great community we have in Canada of musicians, some high profile, uh, Jim Cuddy and Colin Cripps, uh, Blue Rodeo have been very supportive. Um, Stephen Page has been on, uh, Tyler Stewart has been on, you know, uh, so those guys have been supportive, but then there've been a lot of people who make their living playing small venues who many might not have even heard of, or just heard of a little bit. Stephen Stanley, who used to be in lowest of the low has been on a couple of times. He's great. Lovely woman named, uh, Jane Gowan, uh, who's a, was in a band called the real shade and now is working on a project with Tim Vesley from the real statics. Uh, she's been on a couple of times. Dave Bedini has been very supportive of, you know, Canadian music legend. So it's run the gamut and I've met all these people. And the thing we have in common is their love of the Beatles. And uh, we'll have a, a conversation for an hour and a half or two hours. And it just flies by. Peter Jackson's the Beatles get back. How many times have you watched it? <laughs> a, a few uh i've watched it a few times uh funny i was i was just talking to uh to somebody yesterday about it and it's uh i mean just a you know, tremendous 
documentary. Um, it, it really on so many levels, you know, the, on the Beatles level, if you're a Beatles fan, but people who are just casual Beatles fans, I know who watched it are fascinated by it because of a, it's the Beatles, it's famous people um, who you've heard of, but B just the, you know, watching them interact, watching the dynamics between the four of them uh, and the, and the other people in the room. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it really is a, a fascinating watch. You can, you know, so many different layers, you know, then no matter how many times you watch it. It's amazing how much downtime there was. You get a greater appreciation for the process when you get more of the reality. Yeah. Well, and I've had musicians say that, right? Like, it, you know, it's, it's not like you just uh, put a key in and turn it and you, and you spit out a song. Like there's a lot of time sitting around playing with chords and sounds and rhythms and then hoping something will come together. And sometimes it doesn't. And a lot of it is like really mundane, uh, really boring. Uh, and uh, you know, the, the process, right. Grinding it out. Rolling stones versus the Beatles. People get in fist fights over this issue. Paul <laughs> Romanuk says what you can like both or, or it's one or the other. Oh, you can like both. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, you know, snob. one or the other guy. Nah, no. Nah. I mean, the Beatles are, the Beatles are the Beatles. To me, they're on the, you know, they're above everybody else uh, in terms of, of musical legacy and history and all that kind of thing. But I mean, yeah, the Rolling Stones are, they're an amazing band. Uh, I especially love the, uh, the early Stones, you know, the, when they were a little bit more bluesy. Uh, but then there, the period that they went through, I mean, not many better rock and roll disco albums than Tattoo You, um, you know, pretty good. Uh, so, yeah, I still listen. I listen to both and, and a lot of other bands, too. So I don't just listen to the Beatles all the time. Paul, when you're down in the beach, I would like to know where you like to eat, where you like to hang out. I don't just want the common answers. I want at least one hidden gem from you. But I'm going to warn you. My sister, my baby sister, Paula Applebaum, is lurking around the beach. So as soon as you give away your hidden gem, she's going to be there. But where do you like to hang out? Hidden gem in the beach uh, for food, in my opinion, is on Kingston Road. So uh, just sort of up from the beach proper, if you consider Queen Street, sort of the the beach high street. Uh, It's up on Kingston Road, and it is called The Beach Tree. And it is... The, the cooking there is outstanding. Uh, the, you know, the, the guy is a chef, not a cook, right? You know, there's a big difference. Uh, he creates dishes and the menu changes. It's seasonal, uh, but it is absolutely excellent. Not, not a huge place, smallish place. They do a mean cocktail, nice little bar, but the food is excellent. And it's, it's, uh, it, it's known to people in the neighborhood, but I don't think much outside of, of the beach. So I would say the beach tree, uh, that's B-E-E-C-H uh, is how it's spelled. And uh, it is absolutely outstanding. And another great place if you're into sort of a sports bar uh, wings, smoked brisket, that kind of thing. I'm into those things. Place, it's right near, it's on the north side of Queen, um, near Woodbine. So Queen and Woodbine, kind of the north, uh, I guess it would be the northeast corner. Uh, and it's a place called The Breakwall. Uh, and it is, you know, you want to watch a game, you want to have a nice cold pint, and you want to have great bar food. Not going to do much better. So they've, there's two for you. You did excellent, Paul. 
as we wrap up, what are your plans for the remainder of 2022 and beyond? What are you working on? Uh, a couple of podcast ideas, one of them sports related that I'm sort of noodling around seeing if uh, if I can uh, find some uh, sponsorship and the energy to <laughs> the energy to do it. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, and uh, other than that, working on next year's edition of Hockey Superstars and sort of enjoying my semi-retirement. Well, that's are excellent things. And I, Paul, I want to thank you for your time. It was great to have you. Please remind us where we can best hear and follow Paul Romanuk. You can find The Walrus Was Paul wherever fine podcasts are consumed. So all the, uh, all the major platforms, it's called The Walrus Was Paul. My homepage, which features a Walrus Was Paul podcast page, is romycast.com. That's R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T dot com. And you can find uh, a little bit of writing that I've done, as well as all the podcast episodes and information about them. So that is where you can find me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, and the handle is Romanuk Paul. Romanuk Paul. And there's also a Walrus Was Paul Facebook group page. Just do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page and you'll find it. Excellent. Paul, thank you for your time. And to the listener, thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast. On behalf of Paul Romanuk, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. 
What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. 